Welcome back to the Air Crash Diaries with me, your pilot, Desmond Latham. This is the series that tracks air disasters through history and how each has led directly to the safety we almost take for granted each time we climb aboard an airliner. Last week it was the story of the first recognized commercial air crash involving a dirigible or airship over Chicago in July 1919 that killed 13 people, three on board and 10 on the ground. That led to new no-fly rules over city central business districts that we still use. This week we have jumped forward to the crash of Air France 447 which took place in June 2009. In this case, Training and cockpit resource management was improved following the crash. But it all started for the crew aboard Air France 447 when a crucial piece of equipment malfunctioned, leading to incorrect decisions being made by the pilots and eventually a crash that killed all on board. The piece of equipment is called the pitot tube, spelt P-I-T-O-T. At the end of this episode, I'll update the short history of section with more details about the background of the pitot tube. They are amazingly simple yet vital hardware, and you can find these on all aircraft, big or small. The tube is linked to pressure-sensitive instruments and used to determine airspeed, altitude and rate of climb or descent. Modern airliners have more than one, but that didn't make any difference in the early morning hours of June 1, 2009. An Airbus A330-203 registration Foxtrot Golf Zulu Charlie Papa took off from Rio de Janeiro on May 31, 2009, routing to Paris. Because the duration of the flight was more than 10 hours, there were three crew, which meant each could take a break. The flight's captain was Marc Dubois, while the co-pilots were Pierre Cédric Bonnon and David Robert. There were nine cabin crew on board and 216 passengers. Dubois was 57 and had logged 11,000 hours, Robert 6,500 and Bonnon a respectable 2,900. Unfortunately for all on board, The first sign of poor aviating that night was a failure to correctly read the danger of a line of thunderstorms. These appear in the intertropical convergence zone, the area north and south of the equator, which registers cumulonimbus storms that can rise to over 50,000 feet, which is higher than any airliner flies. And unlike some of the other pilots flying in the region that evening, the crew of AF-447 had not studied the pattern of storms. Nor did they request a divergence around the area of most intense activity, which was their second mistake. Other aviators that day decided it was too risky to fly through the succession of storms with the likelihood of heavy turbulence as well as icing. So we now know that AF-447 passed into clouds associated with a large system of thunderstorms and its speed sensors iced over, then the autopilot disengaged. In response, the pilots appeared confused in recordings that were recovered. When the icing began, the data recorders show the pilot in the right seat began to pull back on the controls instead of keeping the plane level, which put the Airbus into a climb. It was already close to its ceiling altitude at the time. That was Bonin, the least experienced pilot of the three, who was at the controls. Because there was a loss of pitot tube signal, the autopilot switched off as the airspeed basically dropped to zero and the artificial horizon appeared to show a slight descent. I've had the pitot tube freeze on me during a ground roll at Lanseria Airport in South Africa. The Cirrus SR20 I was flying went from an airspeed of 70 knots, which is just before a rotate speed of 72, to zero in less than a second. I was forced to abort takeoff and luckily had enough runway ahead to stop safely. Lanseria is a relatively high airport at 4,500 feet. Messing with airspeeds here is deadly. 
After applying pitot tube heat, a gush of steam rushed from the tube, even though the temperature outside was 15 degrees centigrade. Dew had dripped into the tube during Lanceria's long taxiway, and as the plane accelerated for takeoff, that moisture had frozen. The years of training kicked in, and all ended well for me. Had I not been watching the airspeed like a hawk, this could have ended very differently. So I thank my lucky stars and my instructors. It was a nerve-jangling event in my aviating career, so I have a great deal of respect for how confusing it must have been at night at 35,000 feet over the Atlantic. Yes, it was a hazardous but not catastrophic situation had they followed basic principles of flight. Keep away from major movements on the controls. Watch the artificial horizon. But the input from one of the pilots changed all of that into a situation of extreme danger. The pilot flying the plane at that moment, as I've said, was Bernard in the right seat, the least experienced of all three. This was also an accident where incorrect cockpit resource management caused an increase in confusion, as you'll hear. So let's break down this incident piece by piece. After over three hours of quiet on the flight deck, the plane entered the outer extremities of the tropical storm system at 1.36 a.m. The outside temperature was much warmer than forecast, preventing the still fuel-heavy aircraft from flying higher to avoid the effects of the weather, so the pilots would now have to weave between the worst cumulonimbus towering clouds, which appear as magenta colours on the radar. They ploughed through layer after layer of thinnish cloud, and then at 1.51 minutes, the cockpit was suddenly illuminated by an eerie series of flashes. It was an electrical phenomenon called St. Elmo's Fire, which is often found alongside thunderstorms at the intertropical convergence zone. Captain Mark Dubois can be heard saying, All we needed was Mr. St. Elmo. It's going to be turbulent when I go for my rest. Then, a few minutes later, around 2 a.m., the second co-pilot, David Robert, returned to the cockpit after his rest break. The Airbus A330 is designed to be flown by just two pilots, but as I've said, the flight between Brazil and France is so long that Air France operating rules are that the pilots must take turns resting during the journey, and the third was added, allowing the rotation. Robert replaced Captain Dubois, but the younger pilot, Bonnon, was left in control of the plane. Dubois left the cockpit to go and sleep in the rest cabin behind the flight deck, and would only return in the final seconds of the doomed flight. Fifteen minutes later, everyone on board would be dead. They were now flying between two invisible markers in the sky called Salpu and Tazel, which are air traffic position reporting points. That's where pilots have to report their position to air traffic controllers in Brazil and then Dakar, Senegal. The plane entered turbulence and Robert decided to warn the flight attendant, saying the cabin crew should take their seats just in case. The turbulence appeared to increase the apprehension level on the flight deck. Robert and Bonin then talked about how, at high altitudes, icing can be dangerous when the temperature outside was warmer than usual. Some investigators believe this conversation spooked Bonin and caused him to act completely contrary to his comprehensive air transport pilot's license training in a few minutes. They turned on the anti-icing system because they were flying through thickening cloud. The flight surfaces began picking up minute ice crystals, which would reduce the aerodynamic efficiency and could actually cause the plane to crash as the ice builds up on the wings. Robert checked the onboard radar and realized they were in a spot of trouble. The Airbus was headed straight for a set of particularly hazardous storm clouds. You can possibly pull it a little to the left, he suggested. Bonnard banked the plane to the left using the automated avionics, basically turning a knob on the avionics computer still not actually hand-flying the plane. 
That's when a strange aroma filled the cockpit, smelling something like a hot electric engine or a slight smell of ammonia. Barnard said something could be wrong with the air conditioning, but Robert assured him that the effect was from ozone gas in the atmosphere. Then a louder sound could be heard from the slipstream, which experts who analysed the cockpit voice recorder say was the sound of ice crystals hitting the nose. The ice began to clog the bitter tubes. Just then, an alarm sounded for over two seconds, which is the autopilot indicating it had disconnected. And from here on, a slightly challenging situation developed into an emergency. The all-important pitta tubes completely iced over, despite the anti-icing being switched on. From here on, pilots start earning their money, flying the plane by hand. But it's also confusing because there's no pitta tube icing alarm, uh, at least at that stage. So they must use their experience and knowledge to think laterally. They had no idea what had caused the sudden escalation despite hearing the ice crystals hit the plane only a few seconds before. Aside from the loss of airspeed indication on Air France 447, everything else was working fine. Neither of these pilots had ever received training about how to deal with an unreliable airspeed indicator at cruise altitude, or how to hand-fly the Airbus under those conditions. They'd practiced hand-flying at low altitude in simulators. This is one of the things that would change following the Air France 447 tragedy. It is now standard practice in simulators, but for 228 people, that's irrelevant. The youthful Bonnard still had control from the right seat. That's when the next terrible error was made. Bonnard, for some reason, pulled back on the side stick, putting the plane into a steep climb. Possibly his nerves got the better of him after a difficult few minutes, including turbulence, St. Elmo's fire, strange smells, a dangerous storm around, and their chat about the plane finding it difficult to maintain altitude in warmer temperatures. The most important thing to do would be to hold the plane steady and cross-check with the airspeed indicator and ground speed, altitude setting, rate of climb and engine settings. They were still reading correctly. That's what pilots are supposed to do before changing controls. But Bonnard pulled back and the plane's computer warned now that Air France 447 had climbed out of its predetermined altitude setting. Then this one, far more serious. Stall is called out in English by the male voice alarm, then a loud and annoying sound called a cricket. As we'll hear in this series, stalls, particularly close to the ground, are fatal, unless acted upon quickly. All pilots do repeated stalls in various configurations from the earliest days aviating because it's so dangerous. That's when a wing stops creating lift, and the plane either drops a wing or begins losing altitude, usually nose first. A complete loss of control occurs for a moment, but with the correct recovery, this is only for a second or less. All pilots are trained to push the controls forward when they're at risk of a stall, so the plane will dive and gain speed as the air rushes over the wings, creating lift. You cannot ignore an Airbus stall alarm. For the next few minutes, the cricket will blast through the cockpit and the word stall will be repeated over 70 times. But Bonan doesn't believe what he's hearing or seeing at this point. Robert appears equally confused. What's this? he asks. Bonan replies, There's no good, there's no good speed indication. Robert is nonplussed. We've lost the, the, the speeds then? Later, the flight data recorder will show the plane is pitched up climbing at a rocket like 7,000 feet per minute. What happens? 
is like a car going up a hill in one gear. It slows down until it shudders to a halt, a stall. And aeroplanes start to fall fast after stalling, pulled to earth by gravity. The flight data recorder also shows the plane is barely crawling along forwards at 93 knots, which is slower than a tiny Cessna 172 at cruise speed. There's a moment now when they may have been saved. Ballon then pushes the stick forward. The plane's nose drops. The plane begins to descend. At the same time, the anti-icing system had cleared one of the pitot tubes, which began working. Once again, valid speed information was displayed. The speed increased to 223 knots. The stall warning fell silent. The pilots were in control of the plane once more, disaster averted. But only for a few seconds. Robert does not know that Bonnard has not returned his side stick to straight and level. He's pulling back slightly, and therefore the nose is higher than it should be. The plane begins to climb again. Robert doesn't notice, because he's fixating about the captain. He's buzzing the sleeping compartment, but Dubois hasn't woken up. Robert was upset. He had forgotten to fly the aeroplane. Air France 447 was at 37,500 feet, 2,500 feet above its assigned altitude. But Bonan pulled back even harder at that point, increasing the back pressure on the stick to max climb. The plane's stall alarm sounds once again. But both pilots ignored the sound, believing their computer was assisting them in the crisis situation. It wasn't. Once the autopilot switched off, the computer on board was using what is called alternate law instead of normal law. These algorithms are linked to physics, and when operations are taking place in normal law mode, the computer won't accept any control movements that would cause the plane to leave a safe flight envelope. But it was no longer in normal law mode. It was in alternate law. And now the computer won't stop pilots from stalling the plane because it's coded to accept that a major anomaly is not logical. So it opts out of doing anything. This is the weakness in automation, as we discovered recently in the Boeing MAX 8 disasters. Investigators believe it's possible Bonnard had never experienced a simulator test in alternate law mode and must have believed his state-of-the-art computerized plane would save the day. The plane's computer, in turn, was coded to expect the pilots to be in total control. A disaster awaited. By now, all pitot tubes were working normally on Air France 447. All avionics were functioning. From now on, pilot error was 100% to blame for the deaths of 228 people. Then Bernard says something else, which is a bit of a shock. I'm in Toga, huh? Now we know what is behind Bernard pulling the stick back. Toga is an acronym for Take Off, Go Around which is when a landing needs to be aborted, the pilot must gain both airspeed and altitude as quickly as possible. But what is he doing considering Toga at 37,500 feet? And why did Robert not interject with proper information? He's still fixating about Dubois, the captain. So Bernard pulled up steeply on the stick and the Airbus stalled again, and this time there would be no recovery. The plane began to slowly bank to the right and started into what's known as a spiral dive, albeit nose up. Usually, spiral dives take place when the plane stalls, the nose goes down, the spin noticeable, but this was all happening in slow motion, except for the loss of altitude, which began to accelerate to 10,000 feet a minute. Bonnard appeared to be panicking, and Robert didn't notice. He was still trying to call Captain Dubois. The alarm sounds. Sink rate. Sink rate. Sink rate. And one of the pilots pushes the engines to full power. But the wings are still stalled. It's like a car that's stuck in sand, its engine flat out, wheels spinning, going nowhere. Except down. 
We still have the engines. What the hell is happening? I don't understand what's happening, mutters Robert. Robert still doesn't know his colleague has the side stick fully back. This is a feature of the Airbus. The side sticks on an Airbus are asynchronous. That is, they move independently. One can be forward, the other can be back. So Robert thinks that Bonnard is holding straight and level, because that's where his stick is, and he can't see that the stick is being yanked back because these are on the outside of each pilot's thigh. These are not the old-fashioned yokes between the legs you see in classic aircraft. The two pilots have stopped communicating effectively. What's known as crew resource management, or CRM, has failed. Because there's no captain in charge, neither of the two men are thinking clearly, with Robert trying to wake up the captain and obsessing about Dubois' non-appearance, and the plane is slipping inexorably towards the Atlantic as the vertical speed accelerates. All Bernard has to do is to let go of the controls, and the nose of the plane would fall forward. The aircraft would begin to fly again. It's designed to do this naturally, but he doesn't. They're now feeling turbulence from the fluttering wings as the plane shakes, descending like a heavy leaf, shuddering and yawing. Robert finally takes control by saying, I have control. The other pilot then says, you have control, and keeps his or her hands and feet well away from the side stick and rudders. But because the vertical speed indicator shows they're plunging, Robert now does what Bonnard has been doing and pulls back to try and stop the descent. Both don't seem to realize that the artificial horizon shows a high nose-up position. The stall warning continues to blare. They continue to ignore it. Then Captain Dubois can be heard in the cockpit voice recorder. He has finally woken up and returns, and he's shouting, What the hell are you doing? Bonnard replies, We have lost control of the plane. By now, the Airbus is pitched up 15 degrees and is descending at a rate of more than 10,000 feet per minute. They have less than 90 seconds to live. It will maintain this attitude with little variation all the way to the sea. Because the plane was still moving forward at an incredibly slow 60 knots, the computer's stall warning has stopped because it's too slow for the device to register properly. The plane was still in a stall situation, but by not moving forward fast enough, the computer thinks the plane is not flying at all. The captain remained standing instead of taking the controls. From the sounds recorded in the cockpit, it appeared he sat down on the jump seat between the two pilots. Investigators believe that's because the aircraft was bouncing around so much as it plummeted that he could not see the artificial horizon properly and couldn't take up his seat on the left as is standard practice. Dubois had seconds to problem solve, obviously still groggy from his nap and failed to spot the nose-high attitude. Instead, all three appeared rooted to the spot, utterly confused. At 9,500 feet, Robert finally pushed the stick forward, but Bernard has not taken his hand away completely from the side stick, contrary to training, and he is still pulling back. Robert is chanting, climb, 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 climb. At this moment, Bernard says something that had he said five minutes ago, the plane would not have crashed. But I've been at maxi nose up for a while, the captain shouts. No, 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 don't climb. Robert shouts, descend then, give me the controls, give me the controls. Bonnard lets go and Robert pushes the nose down. The plane starts to pull out of the stall, but it's less than 2,000 feet from the ocean. And now what's known as the ground proximity warning alarm begins to sound. Pull up, pull up. Adding to the oral chaos. Sink rate, sink rate. Then, for some inexplicable reason, Bonnard, whose hand remains on the side stick, pulls all the way back again finally dooming all on board. He has trained his whole life to say, you have controls to the other pilot, and then keeping well away from the stick, the rudder pedals, the power levers. 
He was panicking so much that he appears to have forgotten all his years of training. Robert says, damn it, we're going to crash. This can't be happening. Bonan says, but what's happening? The captain says, 10 degrees of pitch. Damn, we're going to crash. Exactly. 1.4 seconds later, the cockpit voice recorder stops. After it disappeared, search and rescue vessels found the first bodies as well as luggage and other small parts floating in the ocean on the 6th of June, five days after the accident. But it took the searchers 24 months longer to locate the main wreckage in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean at a depth of two miles. That's when the flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder were brought to the surface and we now know precisely what happened that terrible night. These recordings and the flight data were analysed and are now used to show aircrew how poor cockpit resource management combined with poor hand-flying technique can lead to a disaster. Airlines around the world immediately changed their training programmes to enforce habits such as paying closer attention to the weather and to explicitly clarify who's in charge when two co-pilots are alone in the cockpit, as well as understanding the parameters of alternate law and practising hand-flying the aeroplane during all phases of flight, including high altitude. But a subtle menace which had entered aviation was also partly to blame here. Through the years, airliners have been built with increasingly automated flight control functions. While these have the potential to remove a great deal of uncertainty and danger from aviation, it has also led to pilot laziness, where hand flying has become almost a lost art in some cases. The reason is, when the data the computers receive is inaccurate, there's no lateral thinking by the machine. Everything is binary. I'll have more about this in future podcasts. For example, an accident in Australia where the pilot believed what the GPS was telling him when it had, in fact, shut down. Lately, pilots in some airlines have been asked to do training in small planes again to relearn hand-flying techniques. And most commercial pilots I know are doing some kind of basic aviating, flying gliders, doing aerobatics, even helicopters. that keeps their hand-flying skills at a high level. A good stick is the phrase given to really good pilots for a reason and still crucial for all pilots of commercial aircraft. It's time for a brief history of the pitot tube. This is an instrument that measures the velocity of flowing fluids such as air and was invented by Henri Pitot in the 1700s. It consists of a tube with a short right angle bend which is placed vertically in a moving fluid with the mouth of the bent part directed upstream. It therefore registers the speed of an aircraft relative to the surrounding air. What the pitot tube does is measures the difference between the pressure of the still air versus the compressed or ram pressure of the moving air. As speed increases, the difference in pressure between the static and dynamic pressure also increases, thus revealing the actual airspeed of the plane. This is very different to the ground speed of an aeroplane. Think of air as always moving, so a plane could be carried along quicker across the ground, a tailwind, or slower, a headwind. Ground speed is then not the same as airspeed. Usually the pitot tube is well clear of a slipstream. On small planes that's under the wing, and in larger commercial airliners around the nose. The first reliable airspeed indicator was designed and patented by Frank Short at the Royal Aircraft Factory at Farnborough in 1912. So these have been built into aircraft for over 117 years. Next week, I'll focus on the dangers for commercial aviation during times of conflict. The shooting down of Malaysian Airlines MH17 by a Russian-backed Ukrainian rebel group in July 2014 is a warning to all airlines to divert around these dangerous airspaces rather than play Russian roulette with hundreds of passengers' lives. So until then, aviate, navigate, communicate safely. 
Goodbye.